I am Bo Ellis Breedlove, and this is the June Bug. Welcome to another episode of The June Bug. Last week, Caroline finally achieved her desire to return home. For the first time since the car accident, she was able to set foot in her home on Kingsman. The joy of this return was quickly darkened by the absence of Vincent and an increasingly abusive relationship with her now caregiver, Josette. This week, a decision Caroline made comes to light at a pivotal moment. It is a decision few around her are willing to respect. Details in the story, such as names and places, have been altered or fictionalized to preserve privacy. Episode 8 The Briar Patch Caroline lays unattended in the king-size bed she so long pined for. The experience of being here, though, has been less than satisfying. It's been months, and still the joy of her homecoming seems to have failed to materialize. Each day she lives has been fraught with a litany of compounding emotions she continues to lack control over. Uncertainty. Frustration. Fear. Anger. A steady regimen of Josette's special tea has kept Caroline largely confined to her bed. So weak and unsteady, she is usually unable to walk on her own. It too, though, has kept a veil drawn over reality, and Caroline in a constant state of increasing confusion and disorientation. Years ago, when the signs had first presented themselves, Caroline considered her confusion to be not unlike a forest, a place where she would become frequently lost among memories meandering aimlessly down paths of fond pastimes. Now, though, her cloud of confusion is more likened to a briar patch, 
in which she is caught in the middle, unable to navigate through the thorny and inhospitable terrain, every move resulting in lacerations and deep wounds to her spirit. Her mental state is becoming one of constant pain and anguish. Daily, she calls out for Vincent. Daily, she experiences the horror that he is no longer in this life. Caroline relives his death afresh every day by lunchtime with such consistency that Josette has lost any remaining semblance of compassion and instead scornfully corrects her grandmother. Caroline lays in a bed clad in stained sheets unwashed in over a week. She cannot recall the last time she herself bathed, a task she has failed to do independently for months. Josette was recently hurried from the Aubrey family home when her lack of care had been revealed and reached an intolerable level for Trent's complacency. In her place now, a new companion shares Caroline's home, a live-in caregiver. A woman interviewed, hired, and moved in by Trent, all without any involvement or consent from Caroline. Like Josette, this stranger is not in any way educated or qualified for this role, merely an inexpensive, companion to keep a watchful eye and little more. This strange woman now occupies the den that had served as Mrs. Aubrey's shrine to her late husband. His awards and plaques have been stripped from the walls. Photos of Vincent proudly holding car racing trophies beside his collection of antique speed cars were carelessly shoved into boxes to make room for the stranger's belongings. Day-old crackers and sliced summer sausage fall off the nightstand as Caroline grapples for purchase to stand from the bed. The room is dimly lit from the street light outside and the neighbor's landscape lighting. This scene fills Caroline with a sense of deja vu as she strains to move from the bed to the bathroom in the dark of night. Aside the scattered crumbs and empty water glasses on the nightstand sits a small crystal dinner bell with an amethyst-colored cut glass clapper. It had been a wedding present and something Caroline had long admired from the safety of her china hutch. Now though, its purpose was to alert the caregiver whenever Caroline was in need. Both stubborn and impatient to wait for assistance, Caroline disregarded the bell and attempted to make her way to the bathroom alone. Without the much needed assistance, Caroline was uneasy and unstable, making the 15-foot trek to the toilet. She made it as far as the threshold of the bathroom 
before her house slipper folded underneath her right foot and destabilized her stance. Reaching out for the door handle, she inadvertently pushed the door further open and motivated her fall. The white porcelain of the toilet bowl met her right temple as she fell between the toilet and the wall, knocking Caroline unconscious. Inspired by true stories, the Junebug Project is always looking for inspirational and informative experiences to share. You can share your story on our website, www.thejunebug.org. Muffled conversations and the sounds of metal carts wheeling past the hospital room stirred Caroline. An IV of Demerol rhythmically dripped a constant dosage into her veins as beeps from the heart monitor let those around her know she was still alive. Straining to open her eyes, her vision was blurred. She could ascertain there were two, perhaps three, individuals accompanying her in the room. Who they were, though, she couldn't tell. Familiar voices discussed, what should we do next? And uh, that's not what she wanted. The IV drip continued as Caroline slipped back into slumber. In the day since the late night accident, all the members of the core Aubrey clan had come and gone from the hospital room, excluding Josette. Initial assessments had located a fracture in Caroline's right hip. She continues to drift in and out of consciousness, but when she is alert, it is not her hip that causes the excruciating pain. She complains of a phantom pain in her abdomen. As the second day dawned, Philip awakes from his night shift at his grandmother's bedside. Soon, a physician will be arriving. A series of x-rays and CAT scans performed the night before were anxiously waiting to be reviewed. Caroline strains to open her eyes and observe her surroundings. Grandma, Grandma, it's, it's me, Phil. Philip, Philip, what am I doing here? Philip began to explain the situation, but Caroline meekly interjected. No, Philip, I mean, what am I doing here? I don't want to be in the hospital. Philip again tried to explain the situation, but Caroline persisted. I don't want to be here. Do you understand what I mean? They need to let me go home. I want to go home. I want to die at home. 
After reviewing the x-rays and various other scans, the physician had determined Caroline would be in need of surgery were she to ever be mobile again. More urgently though, they had identified a strangulated hernia in her lower abdomen. Because of its positioning, it would most likely rupture within days, if not hours. This was alarming because of its close proximity to major blood vessels. The doctor concluded that a rupture would prove fatal. Untreated, Caroline may only have a matter of days. Surgery, though, could avoid this all and repair the hernia, but Caroline would be in a wheelchair. She would need to be moved into a care facility permanently. Well, obviously we have to do surgery then, Joseph chimed in. I, I think we should wait to decide, Margaret shared. Philip interjected, the decision is obvious, no surgery. Caroline stirred again from her sleep as the voices began to debate in her presence. What's, what's going on? Caroline slurred, trying to capture the attention of the group. Mom, Mom, you had a fall. You're at the hospital, Joseph answered. The doctor says you need surgery, Margaret said. Caroline tried to muster the strength to share her feelings, but failed. She was too weak, too tired. The answer to this dilemma was long already decided without the involvement of those present. Caroline had an advanced directive, a document that in no uncertain terms stated she did not want surgery in the event of the need for life-sustaining procedures. Caroline wanted to die. The alternative, as the physician explained, was that Caroline could be released home. She would be given a hospice pack containing all the necessary comfort medication to ensure she was without pain. She could, this very day, this very morning, return home where her final hours or days could be spent in familiar comfort surrounded by family. This decision, even though already made, was too burdensome for the family to undertake. Margaret and Joseph wielded the decision-making power. Much to Philip's disappointment and Caroline's notarized disapproval, surgery was scheduled. I just want to die, Caroline whimpered as the nurses wheeled her gurney back from post-op. Why won't any of you just let me die? 
family gathered around as the nurses transitioned Caroline from the gurney back to her hospital bed. An air of remorse hung heavy as the gathered ones heard Caroline's pleas. Though few could admit it, they sensed an irrevocable error had been made. Now that surgery was done, it was certain that Caroline's level of care had surpassed her in-home caregiver's abilities. The house would be inhospitable to her decreased mobility and need for a wheelchair. She would have to be moved to a specialized care facility. Making this decision even more regrettable, it was soon confirmed by Trent that Caroline's move to a care facility would require the home on Kingsman to be sold. It was the only viable way of financing Caroline's now prolonged need for professional care. In a matter of 36 hours, Caroline not only lost her opportunity to die peacefully at home, she was now losing the home itself. Are you enjoying The June Bug? Did you know that The June Bug Project is much more than this podcast? As we explore new stories each season, the Junebug website will work in tandem with the podcast to roll out new tutorials and services that aim at broadening our audience's education and awareness based on the narratives we are exploring. If you enjoy this project and want to see it continue, please consider becoming a benefactor or a sponsor of the Junebug Project. Your contributions will help to expand the reach of the Junebug and touch more lives. For more information, visit www.thejunebug.org backslash support. Caroline awoke before the sun rose. It is the second Thursday of July. This is an inconvenient reality, though, as Caroline is certain it's a Sunday in December. Sundays seem to happen more frequently for her now. She occasionally registers this oddity, but often dismisses it, fearful of questioning her own senility. Sometimes curious, Caroline would ask someone what day it was, but their answer usually conflicted with her own calendar. That would either lead to an argument or, more often, she would simply ignore them. Since Caroline lived in an alternate reality in which this Thursday in July was instead a Sunday in December, Caroline assumed it was later than the actual time. She supposed it was approximately 8 a.m. when the clock mounted on a nearby wall noted the time as 4.45 a.m. 
It was another inconvenient reality. Caroline occasionally strained to think critically about whether or not her reality was the actual thing. The thoughts, though, were like thorns, pricking and tormenting her. So Caroline would relent and settle into an alternate life, rife with contradictions and a surplus of Sundays. It was less painful this way, to be apathetic to her mental state. It wasn't that bad, she rationalized. After all, Sundays were Caroline's favorite day of the week. Observing her surroundings, she knew that this was not her bedroom at home. Thankfully, this was not a startling fact because Caroline had been attempting to teach herself how to remember again. At least remember enough to avoid the angry fits of confusion she was growing to dread. She had begun to leave herself clues, or perhaps they were left by someone else. It was an attempt to quell her frustration when faced with harsh realities that contradicted her perceptions. Deliberately placed, there was a brochure for the care facility set on the nightstand. The Residences at the Creek, titled the cover over a muted image of a happy couple in their 60s. They were smiling, eyes blue and glistening. In the background, a creek rippled gently between the couple and a picturesque golf course. The distant sky was hues of red and orange, implying a beautiful sunset just out of the picture. Caroline knew this was a reminder she had likely set out for herself to help become familiar with these strange surroundings. Although there was no golf course. As for the views of rippling creeks and colorful sunsets, the reality was sprawling vistas of neighborhood low-income apartment complexes and a strip mall with a subway and a vape shop. Repositioning a few pillows for support, Caroline sat upright with her back against the headboard. The pillows were necessary to make the brown metal hospital bed more accommodating. The room was dark, barely lit from a single bulb left on in the bathroom. Life seemed to exist in darkness more for Caroline. In the pre-dawn dark, Caroline could spy things familiar from home. The fleeting comfort of familiarity gave way to anger that someone had moved her belongings to this strange place. But mere seconds passed before that anger then gave way again to comfort for familiar belongings. This was an increasingly common cycle of emotions. Confusion, comfort, anger, confusion, 
comfort. Anger. On the nightstand, Vincent's wedding band. Another reminder set out to gently nudge the reality that, deny though she may, her husband had passed. She was alone in this strange place. Caroline held the wedding band in the palm of her left hand. She compared the wear of his ring to hers. Vincent's wedding band was worn thin. Small dents speckled the edges of the gold. It lacked any shine or luster, dull from over 60 years of surface scratches and degradation. Caroline's wedding band was polished bright yellow gold. There was merely one minor dent on the palm side of the band. She recalled making that dent one morning when her son William had accidentally closed the car door on her hand. He was seven, and they had been in a hurry to get to Mass on time. He had been wearing a white cotton dress shirt and black khakis. It was William's Sunday to be an altar boy. The thoughts of that Sunday bled into this Sunday morning Caroline was existing in as she thought to herself about which dress she should wear for church and whether or not the kids' clothes had been ironed yet. She then refocused her attention on the ring in her palm. The comparison between the two rings was a testament to how differently their lives had been lived together. Vincent was always working with his hands. Caroline took to more delicate duties, often donning gloves for laborious tasks. Gazing upon this artifact of her marriage, Caroline wondered how long she had been without her husband. She thought mournfully how many mornings she had awoken alone and performed this very act, this tangible ritual of connecting with her husband, preparing herself to face a future without him. How many weeks had it been? Had it been months? How many times had she held this ring in her hand? A mere few or hundreds? How many nights had she slept alone in this strange place. Is this purgatory? Caroline wonders. So infrequently, they had been apart in the decades of their marriage. Loneliness was a new sensation for Caroline. She had always had Vincent's companionship. The increasingly few times Caroline could recall being without Vincent were often ones associated with vacations or travels. That time she waited for him in the train station, he was on his way to collect her. Faint recollections of a ferry station in Vancouver, BC, where she awaited Vincent's return from a car race. An airport terminal 
where she waited patiently, watching the clock until his return from a boy's trip to Arizona. Fighting her stiff and weak muscles, Caroline attempted to stand from the bed, using a walker to stabilize herself. In the corner of her intimate room sat a desk from home. On the side of the desk, a prayer book, atop a pile of postcards and letters offering well wishes. Prayer had been a renewed habit. Caroline's faith in God was still overshadowed by doubt, but prayer gave her hope that there may be a higher power hearing her plea, a plea to be expedited from this life, a plea for her death to come swiftly. Caroline shuffled towards the desk in the dark. As she reached for the prayer book, she felt her weakened right hip give way underneath her. As the leg gave way, she lurched forward, her arm still outreached for the book. She fell towards the desk. Her cheekbone met the hard square corner of the oak, and then the cold, hard surface of commercial carpeting. Caroline wailed in pain. It is 4.53 a.m. The overnight shift at the creek is manned by a skeleton crew of two nurses, both of whom are in the communal living room two wings over from Caroline's apartment. They're watching Netflix and sharing a cherry-flavored vape. They do not hear the commotion. Caroline attempts to push herself up from the floor, but her hands slide out from underneath her on the smooth beige berber. She begins to weep into the fibers of the carpet. As she does so, she feels something in her left hand. She still holds her husband's wedding band, clutching it tightly. She weeps, not for the injury, but for the loss of her sweet Vincent. If he were here, this wouldn't have happened. If he were here, she wouldn't be in this place. If he were still here, she would be waking up in her own bed, in her home on Kingsman, Vincent in bed beside her. He would lean over and kiss her. She would rest her head on his chest. They would lay in bed together. She would play footsie with him. It always made him laugh. Caroline had long toes and she would tickle his feet and grab his toes with hers. You have weird toes, he would always say, and they would just laugh. The room would be cold. They liked the bedroom cold. It's better for cuddling, Vincent would always say. Vincent. Caroline struggles to even speak his name, but she does still, hoping he might answer. Vin. 
Caroline says aloud once more, wishing he would wake up and come help her off the floor. Vincent! Laying on the carpet, Caroline spies the corner of her suitcase peeking out from the ajar closet door. She recalls some of the places it's been. The hotel lobbies. A flash of that ferry port in Canada. The suitcase beside her as she waited on a bench to spy Vincent's Panama hat among the disembarking passengers. Vincent. Caroline outstretches a hand towards the suitcase. Vincent. I have to get ready for Vincent. He's coming to pick me up soon. The June Bug is produced by Breedlove Creative Enterprises. Original music composed by Bo Ellis Breedlove. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can also help support this podcast and the June Bug Project by becoming a supporting member on our Patreon page www.patreon.com backslash the Junebug. Thank you for listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Stay tuned for the next installment of The Junebug.